The scripture reading today is from Proverbs 1, 8 through 33. Hear, my son, your father's instructions, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland on your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all of my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despise all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure, will be at ease without dread of disaster." A recent study found that we make 35,000 choices a day. And some of these choices are big choices, like where will we go to college? Who will we marry? And some of them are small choices, like what will I eat and what will I wear? But what's really, really interesting is how we come by these choices. See, some of these choices we force ourselves into by planning and dreaming. Those are like college and marriage and what do I want to do and where am I going to live? And then other choices break in upon us. They present us with new opportunities to respond to new realities. So if you were here uh, last week, you'll remember that we talked about all of life hinging on just one principle. And that one principle was whether we responded to or rejected a covenant relationship with Jesus. 
And so as we come this morning, we inevitably come to the question, how does that choice present itself? How does the invitation to discipleship, the invitation to Jesus, ultimately break in on our lives? And so to answer that, we're going to turn to Proverbs 1, verses 8 to 33. If you have your Bibles or a phone with you, turn with us there. If you don't, at the top of your sermon guide, the text is included. So you'll notice that uh, verses 8 to 19 open up with advice from a father and a mother to their son. And the advice is a warning about the human heart. And what's interesting about the advice is they begin here because it's a situation that every single human heart eventually faces. And here's what they say. Basically, they say, wicked men are going to invite you to join them. And when they invite you, that invitation is going to seem persuasive. And here's why it's going to seem persuasive. Because they're going to have a promise and they're going to have a plan. And the promise is we're going to acquire goods for ourselves. We're going to acquire all the nice things of life. And then we're going to fill our houses with them. And then they've got a great plan. The plan is we're going to partner together. We're going to take advantage of the unsuspecting. And then we're going to split it all up afterwards. See, basically, in summary, the father and mother begin with the warning that human hearts are wired to pursue life by acquiring stuff. And that in our pursuit of acquiring stuff, we're willing to take advantage, even take the blood and life of the people around us to get it. This probably isn't a surprise to any of you. If you watch the news, we see these types of stories roll into the headlines day after day, week after week. If It's a little bit old now, but if you remember the story of Bernie Madoff, this man and his team, uh, using his position inside the community, they uh, convince wealthy investors to invest with him. And then they fraudulently uh, send out records of trades and returns in order to get more people to invest. And then what they do is they take the money as profit for themselves. And over the course of 20 years, they defrauded 4,800 families of $18 billion dollars. But it's not just criminals. We all, uh, or at least most of us, lived through the housing market collapse, 2007, 2009, and then all the fallout from that. It was due to a lot of different things, but one of the main factors was the prevalence of subprime lending. All the bankers in the room are, are going, oh boy, here we go. Uh, but there was a 400% increase in subprime lending, which is basically extending credit Uh, beyond what people could afford or beyond what was probably wise to do. And so what happened is banks would write bigger loans to people than they could probably afford. And people, home buyers, would buy bigger homes with loans that they probably couldn't pay back. But it was legal. It was all fine. The only principle governing the whole entire thing was how much could I get? Didn't matter the impact on the, the home buyer's impact on the bank or the bank's impact on the home buyer's or or that situation's impact on the community. See, the point is this, is we see this all the time in our culture, and it it happens so much that, frankly, we're blind to it. It takes a warning like the father and the mother to turn our eyes to it, and the warning is this, is that the human heart longs to find life in acquiring stuff. 
and that we're willing to take advantage of the people around us to do that. But ultimately, we come to the question, and this is why you get the advice from the father and mother, why do we find it persuasive? Why doesn't that idea repulse us? Why, why are we attracted to it? And so in, in Jeremiah 2.13, we learn uh, that the Lord says, my people have committed two sins. The first sin that he says that they've committed is they've turned from me the spring of living water. In other words, they have, in, a, in, in an attempted independence, they've turned from the source of life. But then he goes on to say there's a twin, there's a second sin, and that is they've dug cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't hold water. See, in other words, in Jeremiah 2.13, the Lord says that the human heart has turned away from the Lord in independence and in attempts at having life on its own has gone about trying to find it in other things. And see, here's the thing about uh, cistern digging. It's hard, man. It is really, really, really hard work. But ultimately when the opportunity to acquire things for ourselves comes along, when we're tempted to do it, our heart thrills at the opportunity and we look past the consequences of it. Our desire blinds us to the consequences. So what's probably most interesting is why the mother and father give the warning. You, if, you, if you flip with me to verse 19, you would probably expect right now that uh, it's some version of it's morally wrong. And it is morally wrong, but that's not what the mother and father say. Look at verse 19. They say the reason you shouldn't do this is it's a dumb plan. That the exact thing that this behavior promises, which is life, is exactly what it takes away from you. It says that ultimately the one who gets things in this manner, life will be taken from them. So again, we, we talked about cistern digging being a, a hard thing. Have you all ever dug a hole with your own two hands? It's hard work. It's exhausting. And then if you've ever, maybe if you've been to the beach, and that's probably not a good example, but even just a, a, one of the dirt holes, if you've tried to fill it up with water, what happens? Dirt, dirt holes don't hold water, right? The water, it just sucks up the water. I remember this story of uh, my, my father was trying to build a fence around our um, yard. And I grew up in Maryland, in the hills of Maryland, right on the Appalachian Trail. And if you've been on the AT at all, it's real rocky. It's real filled with granite. And here was my job, 16 years old. My job is take the tamping iron. Y'all know what a tamping iron is. And a manual post hole digger. And walk over and every six feet, tamp, dig, and then tamp, and then dig and then tamp, and then dig, and then move on. Six feet later, I'd tamp, dig, tamp, dig, tamp, di and then six feet later, tamp, dig, tamp, dig, tamp, dig. See, that's exactly the way the Bible describes our attempts at finding life outside of God. That they're exhausting and impossible. Well, what's interesting is that it also says that it's the natural condition of the human heart and that it's the inevitable outcome of every human heart. And so what we do is left without any other option. We try this crazy attempt at 
digging a deeper cistern and digging a deeper cistern. And eventually we try more and more extreme behavior. Maybe this week you read uh, the story about Alex Hunold. Did y'all see that? There's this rock climber who free soloed El Capitan. El Capitan is this, uh, it's a a half a mile sheer rock cliff that juts up out of Yosemite National Forest. If you've uh, bought a Mac lately, it's that picture in the backdrop on the desktop of the Mac. And what free solo means is he climbed it without ropes. Free soloing is just you, the rock, and gravity. And what's amazing is the commentators, as they tell the story of this, they talk about this uh, 600 foot high section that the glaciers have basically turned into glass. And as you get to this point, there's no handholds. If you slip, there's nothing for you to catch yourself on. The only thing you can do is lean as hard as you can into the glass and use the balls of your feet to try to walk up it vertically. If you sneeze, if you daydream, if you sweat real bad, you are crashing a thousand feet down to the base of El Capitan. But here's what's crazy. They get to the top and National Geographic and CNN and Fox News and all these commentators are standing at the top. And you know what they said? They said, we would love to praise this guy for his achievement, except what he did is essentially reckless. He gets to the top and they said, it's not a matter of if, but when these climbs are going to kill him. And then they turn to Alex Hunold and they ask him why he keeps doing it. And listen to this quote. He says, I didn't find it as fulfilling as I'd hoped. People might expect these kinds of climbing achievements to generate euphoria, but in fact, I seem to experience the opposite. See, every extreme climb, he gets to the top and it leaves Alex Hunold feeling empty. Honestly, it probably feels, it leaves him feeling even more empty. And so he tries the next thing and the next thing and the next thing until eventually it's now put him in a place where they say, this guy's gonna die. It's gonna destroy him. Now look, I know that's an extreme example to illustrate the point, but our hearts are like this. It's the pattern of the human heart. So think about uh, your work. How often does your work require you to stay late to get the most urgent project done and you have to punt on your obligations to your family? Or maybe you're the employer. And what you need is for this really urgent project to go really, really well. And so you demand your employees to stay late and it puts them in the position between pleasing you and punting on their families. Or maybe parenting. Rather than nurturing and disciplining our children out of what will cause them to flourish, every single day we face the temptation to correct their behavior because it's inconvenient. See, my point's this, is that deep down inside of the human heart, we love to pursue life and other things. And that we are willing to exhaust ourselves and destroy ourselves and destroy the people around us in an attempt to get it. That's what the warning of verses eight to 19 tells us. And so this morning, I wanna leave you with a very first question. And that question is, where are you persuaded to look for meaning? 
Where are you persuaded to look for purpose outside of God? Are there things or people in your life that are making promises to your heart that you know they can't keep? So Proverbs 1, 8 to 19 warns us about the situation of the human heart. And it also tells us that it's inevitable. The warning begins because it is something that all of us deal with. And then we come to the realization that if we're going to have hope, if we're going to have rescue, if we're going to have life, then it has to break in from outside of us. If we're going to have life, then something or somebody has to break in to the situation of the human heart. And that's exactly where we get in verses 20 to 33. So turn with me to verses 20 to 33. Uh, what you should notice here is that right in the midst of a dire warning between from mother and father with no break at all, Lady Wisdom breaks in like a street preacher. Lady Wisdom breaks in calling out to the people and she's got an invitation and a promise. And so this morning, what I want us to look at together is uh, three things. Who is this street preacher? Second, what is the invitation? And third, when or, or, or where does it happen? So first, who's the street preacher? Well, you'll notice Proverb 1 describes uh, wisdom as a person and not a concept. I mean, that's enough for us to talk about this morning. Wisdom is a person. But then it goes on to describe this person as being willing to humbly face rejection in order to rescue man. And then it describes this person as a prophet who cries out in the street and then Ultimately, it describes this person as doing and promising the things that only God can do. It infers that this person is a divine person. So again, we come to the question, who is the person of wisdom? Well, in Proverbs 1, uh, Lady Wisdom is just a metaphor. She's not a real person. There's not, during the time of Solomon, there wasn't a person going around with the title Lady Wisdom. But the metaphor is a foreshadow intending to point us to Jesus. It's a metaphor intending to point us to the one who would break in as a street preacher to rescue humanity. See, 1 Corinthians 1 uh, goes about calling Jesus the wisdom of God. And it says that he became for us the wisdom of God. And then when we meet him, when we get to Matthew 4, 17, he's stepped down from heaven assumed human flesh, and he's going town to town and city to city, crying out in the street, calling the people to repentance. And then Romans 5, 6 says this. It says that exactly when we were powerless, right when we were in the middle of our burden and our weariness and our independence and our rejection of God, Christ broke into the scene that he came at just the right time. And so we come to the question, when he came, when Jesus broke into the scene, what, what was the invitation? What is it that he called people to do? And so you, if you turn back to Proverbs 1, you'll notice that the street preacher has two calls. The first one is to repentance, and the other one is to choose the Lord, or choose the fear of the Lord. 
Well, if you remember last week, we talked about uh, that word Lord, or the, the Hebrew word that's translated Lord is actually the personal covenant name of God. It's, it's Yahweh. Basically, what you would have heard here is uh, choose a two-way committed relationship with God, with the Lord. And then Jesus breaks into the scene and listen to the way that he picks up this call. Listen to how he picks up the invitation. As he goes from city to city, he cries out, come to me, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. As he goes along the Sea of Galilee, he cries out to the crowds, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then as he's standing in the dead center of Jerusalem, he cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. See, the cry of Jesus, the street preacher, is to come to him. As Jesus breaks into the scene, his invitation is to come, but it's exactly in the midst of our burdens. It's exactly in the midst of our weariness. It's not in the midst of our altogetherness, but in the midst of our neediness that Jesus breaks in and bids us come. See, that's what repentance is. And that's what faith is. So repentance is turning from our self-destructive, independent attempts at having life on our own. And faith is turning to Jesus as the one who made us and accepting his offer to find life in him. See, the, the call to repentance that we read about in Proverbs 1, it, it, it comes with judgment, but its main accent is mercy. The intent of repentance is to bid you to come and to be rescued and to find reconciliation and to find uh, restoration. But when does this come? When do we find this invitation in our life? When, when does the invitation to discipleship come about in our lives? If you look back at Proverbs 1, you'll notice uh, three places that it says that the street preacher cries out. Read it with me. It says the noisy streets, the marketplace, and the city gates. So what you'll notice about all of those is those, those are the public places. Those are the places of transaction and relationship and business. So what it says is that the call to discipleship, to invitation, doesn't just come while you're lying on your bed at night. It doesn't just come in your living room, and it doesn't just come on your drive in your car on the way to work in the morning. What it says is that it comes right into the craziness and messiness of our personal complicated lives. And it makes a ton of sense that it does, right? Think, think about when are you aware of your independence? Or when do you become aware of your burden or your weariness or your thirst or your hunger? When does it become clear to you that someone has let you down or you have let someone else down? Isn't it in the midst of our relationships, in the midst of our, our businesses and our families? Uh, the evidence of this is pretty staggering. Uh, it, you guys who are in the healthcare uh, arena might 
recognize this stat, but do you know around the world today, 350 million people live with diagnosed depression? And another 350 million live with undiagnosed depression? That's almost a billion people. Same study says that in the US just this year, one out of 12 adults will face a major depressive episode. But it's not just depression, it's, uh, and it's not just adults. A recent Gallup study found that 74% of 11-year-olds, that's fifth graders, are engaged at school, but only 34% of 17-year-olds are engaged at school. You know the difference? Seven years, six years. Only difference there is time and experience with life. And then just fast forward that a little bit. Think about your career. Think about your work. The same Gallup study found that seven out of 10 adults are something less than engaged at their job, less than engaged with their employer. See, here's the point. We are a weary and burdened people a weary and burdened culture. But just like Jesus broke into the scene 2,000 years ago and bid the streets of Jerusalem to come to him, today the Holy Spirit breaks into our lives, breaks into our hearts, right in the midst of our burdens and our weariness, not in our altogetherness, but in our neediness, and bids us to come to Jesus. See, the invitation to discipleship comes right in the midst of all of our brokenness. So I want to leave you with a second question. What has you burdened? What has you discontent or discouraged or disappointed? And what would it look like for you to abandon trying to control that? and to take it to Jesus? What would it look like for you to be honest with him, not just about what's going on, but about where you are, about what's happening in your heart? So inevitably we come to the question, when Jesus breaks in on the scene and calls us to come to him, what promises does the street preacher make? That's another way of saying what benefits are there in Christ. If you turn back to uh, Proverbs 1, you'll see that Lady Wisdom, as she cries out in the street, she makes two promises. The first promise is, if you turn, I will cause my spirit to be poured out to you and will cause my words to be known by you. And then later she promises, whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Aren't those super sweet promises? Think about what's being said here. That exactly to the hearts that are weary and burdened and exhausted, she cries out and offers security. She cries out and offers a new spirit to reanimate them. Isn't that what we need today? 
All those stats that we just read about burden and weariness and depression and disengagement. If we're going to honestly abandon our attempts at independence, remember last week's conversation, all of life hinges on how you respond to the call to discipleship. If we were going to honestly respond to that invitation, don't we need the promise of security? Don't we need the promise of a future without dread? Don't we need the promise not just of the resurrection of our bodies on the last day, but of the resurrection of our hearts today? And so what happens? Remember, Lady Wisdom is a metaphor pointing to Jesus. And so Jesus breaks into the scene and as he's going city to city and he's crying out to the people to come to me, listen to what he says. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's some pretty good security. Jesus Christ, the King of heaven who has stepped down into humanity, into history, Right as he says, in the midst of your burden and your thirst, if you are thirsty or hungry, come to me. The very next thing he says is, I will never cast you out. And then what does he go on to say? He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of of living water. The text tells us that he says this about the Holy Spirit. And then in short order about the Holy Spirit, he says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, that's some good news. It is exactly in the midst of our burden, exactly what our hearts are longing and searching for is what we're offered when we, when Jesus calls us to come to him. Listen to hearts that long for security and to hearts that out of a deep effort to put dread far away, have wearied themselves. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, if you come to me today, I will never forsake you. He says to the hearts who have turned to independence, to hearts that have abandoned their ability to flourish in independence, independence on their maker, listen to the promise of Christ. He says, if you come to me, I will pour out the Holy Spirit who is your helper and he will teach you all things and he will well up inside your heart like a flowing river of water. See, that's when the call to discipleship comes. The invitation to discipleship comes right in the midst of our difficulty and our burden, and it comes not as a call to judgment, but as a call to mercy. It comes not as a call to destruction, but as a call to restoration and to reconciliation. And so listen, what I want you to hear this morning is in your disillusionment in work or your frustration in marriage or your distraction in parenting, in your despair over purpose 
or your confusion with finances or your longing for a relationship. That in your failed attempts at being righteous or your misguided consumption of others or your deep, deep pursuit of riches. This morning, Jesus says that if you will come to him, if you will humbly turn to him and be honest about not just what's going on, but where you're at, be honest about the deep, deep parts of your heart, then what Jesus says this morning is, I will never cast you out. What he says is, I will never leave you or forsake you, but what I will do is I will pour out my Holy Spirit who will teach you all things until he wells up inside of you like flowing rivers of new life that flood over into the neighborhoods and families and coworkers and children around you. Let's pray. Father, it was your good pleasure and plan to send Jesus to break in like a street preacher. And Jesus, we are grateful to you for accomplishing our redemption. We are grateful for your purchase of us and we're grateful for your sweet and precious and uh, great promises that, that give us hope. And Holy Spirit, even now you are the one who breaks in to our lives breaks into our burdens and our weariness and bids us come to Jesus. And so we pray this morning that you would make us a people who respond to your discipleship. That Lord, you would make us a people who are won by the plan of the Father through the work of the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would make us a people whose hearts have turned from independence and whose hearts have become like rivers flowing with living water. We plead with you as a people who are dependent on you and we, we turn to you in the hope of your promise. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus.